Everybody said? Amen. We're in a series called Life Struggles. Uh, we're on number nine. And we are talking today about failures. Failures. What happens when we go through failures? There's a lot of things that we all struggle with. And one of the things that we all can struggle with in our life is failures. Things don't always work out the way we want them to. But also, we can sometimes make mistakes. I don't know about anybody make mistakes. Some of you. Okay, well, we're going to pray for the rest of you. Uh, I should talk about lying. No. Uh, you know, one of my, my, if I go back and think about, I don't really try to go back and think about my greatest regrets. That's not something I want to live in. But if I think about the things I've regretted in my life, most often it's things I shouldn't have said or should have said. Anybody else like me? Some of you feel like Peter sometimes. sometimes I should have just kept my mouth shut. That was one of my biggest, or I should have actually said something. Uh, in that moment, to restore a friend or to tell someone you love them, Maybe it was a difficult situation. Maybe I should have looked back and said, man, I really should have handled that with more grace or more wisdom. I, I really should have done that differently. And how many pray for do-overs sometimes? Anybody? Any, every now and then you just pray for a do-over. So what happens when you do something you can't undo? How do you go through that the kingdom way? Maybe you broke something you can't fix. Uh, you can regret something, like you can regret an education choice or maybe a career choice. You can regret maybe a bad high school romance or something like that. Maybe a, a lost opportunity. Maybe you should have jumped on that when you should have. And that's a regret. And that's really maybe like a moment you really didn't live up, you know, to like your full potential, what you thought you should do. Then there's remorse. So that's regret. So remorse, though, remorse is when you're distressed about something. It's when you feel like you caused some kind of damage uh, in some relationship, or maybe in your own heart, maybe you're ashamed of what you did do, or ashamed of what you should have done that you didn't. Maybe it's a failed marriage, a damaged relationship with your kids. That happens in life. Maybe you burnt bridges in your life with past addiction, or you lost an opportunity through a poor decision. Maybe you made choices when you were young, maybe it resulted in shame that has just not been able to shake off of you for a long time. Maybe you said something hurtful to someone you love and you can never take that back. So you can be living today, maybe perhaps in the pain of your past. Maybe today you're in that place uh, where you just can't shake it. I'm hopeless maybe that I'm ever going to mend that relationship. Maybe in that moment you're trying to start new things, but you get flashbacks of something you've done. Or maybe someone just won't give you the chance because you've already done so much damage that that relationship is over and it'll never be the same again. Maybe today you're waiting for your, relation, your reputation to be restored. And you might feel like today that God could never use you because of what you've done. And I just say to you right now, welcome to the broken. That's what this church is all about. Welcome to the broken. If you're feeling paralyzed or powerless, asking yourself, how do I move forward? Uh, we're here to tell you that Christ is a God of restoration. He's a God that you don't have to live in regret. You don't have to live in remorse. And Scripture is full of all kinds of examples of worse people than us, thank God, where He saved them, healed them, delivered them, and restored them to something they didn't even deserve. Better than we deserve. That's how good our God is. And you see, there's no differentiation. The Bible says that God's no respecter of persons. Romans chapter 3, we quote this a lot, but if you go to Romans 3.22, it says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. Why? Because for all have sinned, we know this, and fallen short of the glory of God. He's saying there's no distinction on either side. There's no distinction in this room. Every single person in this room who listens to this sermon, you've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. There's no distinction. But in the same sense, there's no distinction for who God can restore 
for and saved by grace. There's no distinction for who God can use. Aren't you thankful that God is a God of no distinction? All have sinned, but all can be saved. All have remorse, but all can be restored. So there's no distinction. You see, you may say, well, Pastor, I don't really have any bad stuff like that in my life. I've tried my hardest to do good. Yeah, but here's, let me tell you this. You may not have cheated on your spouse or had a failed marriage, but you've all cheated on, we've all cheated on God. We've all failed God. We've all committed adultery on God. Maybe you didn't uh, neglect your kids and you were a pretty good parent, but yeah, guess what? You've neglected God in some way. There's some part of my life where I neglected God for a season and I should have done something and said something or didn't do something. I've neglected God. There are times where I wasn't faithful and I neglected Him. Maybe there's moments in my life I can say, yes, I have failures with my relationship with the Lord and there's no distinction. He's a God who's good all the time. Somebody say amen. amen. He makes right those who admit their wrongs. So let me give you five steps from remorse to restoration. That's what our topic today is. Five steps from remorse to restoration. So let me set you the stage. We're going to go through Psalms 51, but let me tell you why there's a Psalms 51. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. David in the time in the spring when they were sending troops off to battle, he should have went out to battle, but he didn't. He stayed home alone uh, and got himself into trouble. And before David ever stopped fighting physical battles, he had already stopped fighting spiritual battles. The Bible says when he sent his troops off to war to fight, he stayed home. And after an afternoon nap, he got up off of his bed, went up to the roof, and there he saw a beautiful lady. His, his house was kind of overseeing the, the rest of the world, the rest of the town behind him. And so he began to look. He saw this, sees this lady. He inquires of her and tells his servants, go get her. Well, they knew who she was. He even knew who she was because of 37 top elite fighting men that David had. He had his mighty 30, he had three and a few others, and they were the top 37 elite Navy SEALs, okay, of his military. One of them was a guy named Uriah the Hittite. This was his wife. He knew that. It was also Eliam. Uh, he was a guy on there in 37, and it was his daughter. So, okay, so they kind of think this. There's two ways she, he knew this young lady. He brought her up to the house. He had relations with her, and he sends her back. And she writes a letter back and says, hey, guess what? I'm, I'm pregnant. And knowing that this crime is guilty of death, not only for him, but for her, he tries to cover it up. You know, sin makes you stupid sometimes, and he begins to dig himself a hole. And sin will take you to places you never thought you wanted to go. Remember what James said? That it says that sin, when it's conceived, it doesn't just stay there, it grows. And when it's conceived, it gives birth, and then it results in death. It just keeps going. Sin is like a weed. It's like a cancer. It starts out small, but before you know it, it's taken over your whole backyard. It's ruining your garden. Because if it's not dealt with at the very beginning, it begins to grow. And here's what happened. So he tells, hey, get Uriah back. Bring him from the front lines. He says, hey, go home, take a break. Uh, you're a great guy. Go home, be with your wife. He tries to cover it up. But Uriah is such an honorable man. He sleeps at the door of the king's palace. He won't go do that. He says, the, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, David's soldiers, you're, they're all out there. How can I go home and take a break when all of them are fighting? So what does he do? He tries to get him drunk. Gets him drunk, still doesn't go back home. He's such an honorable man, Uriah. And so David sends a letter to General Joab, who's a wicked man, and he sends it by the very hand of Uriah himself. And the letter, Uriah never sees it. He gets to the general. David's got a letter for you. And here he opens the letter. It says, put Uriah on the fiercest battle. And when the battle is the worst, pull away from him. So David's now conspiracy for murder. This is one of his best friends. Sin can make you stupid. 
It blinds you, ignorant to what's really going on. This is a man after God's own heart. King David, the man who wrote Psalms 23, the man who slayed a giant, the man who loved God with an intimate love like probably very few have ever loved God. Joab does it, sends word back, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David said, well, you know, that happens. That's battle. But the Bible says that this, this pleased the Lord. So after the child was about to be, it's almost nine months, maybe up to a year, God sends Nathan the prophet, and he says, there was two people, a rich man and a poor man. One poor man had a lamb. And so this rich man was making a feast, but instead of taking it from his own flock, he took it from the poor man's house. David, in furious, says, that man deserves to die. He needs to repair that by fourfold. And Nathan says, you are that man. You know, sometimes God sends correction, and sometimes he sends reproof. David literally knows Psalms 32 had said, but when I was ignoring this, my soul, my body was wasting away on the inside of me. It was like a heat coming down from me. You ever felt that in your life when you were walking away from God? You were so ignorant of sin, you were still living in that place. But on the inside, something was churning, something was bothering you. And maybe there was a secret part of David just wanting this to be exposed. But he's, he but really wrote, my, my body, my soul was just wasting away. My bones were failing because I knew what was wrong. I wasn't close to God. God revealed it. He says, David, here's the consequence. Your house is always going to be divided. In fact, four sons are going to fall from you. And he goes on to tell him, your house will never be the same. You'll never not know war. You'll never build the temple of God. You'll always have peace. Blood's always going to be on your hand. And in fact, the kid that you just had, he's going to die. David, sackcloth and ashes, begins to pour out before the Lord to save the child. For seven days, he weeps, he fasts, he prays. And he comes back, and they say, the child's dead. And David gets himself up, gets off, gets off his knees, changes his clothes, anoints himself with oil, goes before the presence of God, and begins to worship. David's journey in that moment, he, in, that, in that time when he was repenting, he wrote Psalms 51. That's what we're going to look at and break out today. The first part is repentance. You have anybody ever given you a sorry apology? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know apology is saying I'm sorry, but sometimes it's a sorry apology. It's like, hey, I'm sorry. Like, you know you don't mean it. You know what I mean? Like, I say I'm sorry, sorry. You know, my, I have two girls. They fight all the time, and you make them hug, and they, you know, slap each other across the face, tell your sister you're sorry. Sorry, you know, and sure, okay, right. Uh, and they go back home and start screaming and pulling hair again. Nobody's kids ever do that. Okay, but apology. Apology is more than I'm sorry. A good apology is a regretful acknowledgement of an offense or fear. That's what Webster says. It's a regretful acknowledgement of an offense or failure. Uh, Gary Chapman, who I love, a Christian author, he wrote The Five Love Languages. He also has a book called Five Languages of Apology. And he says it starts off with uh, expressing regret or confession. Number two, accept the responsibility Three, genuinely repent. Four, make a restitution. And five, ask for, request forgiveness. And, and Psalms 51 basically does that. It's repentance is part of a true apology. What's repentance? The, uh, scripturally speaking, 
It means to change one's mind or to make a turn. It's more than just confession of a sin. That's part of a repentance. It's part of apology. But it means to come to a moment and say, I can't continue to live this way. I've got to make it right somehow. And it is to turn from where you are, to turn back to right relationship and right living. It means confession, but accepting the responsibility and then take a step towards the change. And so in Psalms 51, look in verse 3 and 5. So if you're there, I'm just going to be quoting quoting out parts of the, uh, the chapter, verse 3 and 5. He says, For I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me against you, God. You alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In verse 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Maybe today there's something weighing you down. You could be in that moment with David and you just realize, man, there's something not right in my relationship with God, in my relationship with another person. And David acknowledges, he says, I admit, and that's when we say this in, in our in a, a basic sinner's prayer, I admit that I'm a sinner. That's part of confession, to acknowledge it. Say, I have wronged. Maybe it's someone else, but ultimately the person I've wronged is God. The first person we ever sin against is God, because to sin against another is to sin against God. He says, when the creature is out of line with the Creator, He says, God, I know inside of me you've sent conviction, you've sent reproof, and I've done something I can't undo. And so He begins to directly confess. So the first part of any journey from remorse to restoration is repentance, number one. Aren't you thankful for, I love, this is one of my favorite verses, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He, if we confess, He's faithful. So that leads me to number two. Why in the world would God accept our apology? Think about it. Especially David. The dude killed his best friend, committed adultery, cheated on his wife. I mean, come on. I mean, he conspired with his own military to kill one of their own. I mean, this thing just keeps going worse to worse. And why could David even think... What gall do I have to even go before God and even ask for apology? He made me king. I ruined it. I've done all these things wrong. How can I ever be continue to be king? No one's ever going to respect me anymore. I mean, but he has this, this acknowledgement. Look at verse 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David comes and he comes to the character. Uh, husbands don't do this though. I mean, maybe, maybe you should. And you could go to your wife, you're making a mistake. You say, honey, I know you're so great. I know you're so wonderful. I know you're so loving, but I broke your mom's china. You know, like you, he appeals to the character of, the, of God. He says, according to your grace, according to your loving kindness. What is a loving kindness? Loving kindness is that part of God, or it is God, the benevolent affection of God. We say his mercy endures what? Forever. That's who he is. God is love. And he appeals, he says, I know I can, aren't you thankful? I know I can go to God no matter how bad it is. I killed somebody. I murdered somebody. I cheated on his wife. I did stuff I can't undo. But yet I can still go to a God that is so good that his mercy endureth forever. I don't know any other gods like that. I don't know any other gods like our God who could take person who is the filthiest of filthy and say, this person can actually request to be forgiven. It's because of, number one, his character. 
And number two, it's because of Christ. David looked at that and he said, I, I know I can request something because I'm looking ahead to a kindness of God, to a Redeemer. David had a promise that there would be a son come after him. Later on, God would reveal this. He looked ahead to something that God would do. And today we look back to something God did. It was when the kindness and grace appeared. Look what Titus 3, 4 says. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Somebody say, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according with His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? Well, David understood this in Psalms 51, verse 7. He says, purify me with the hyssop. That's that hyssop that would cleanse the Passover. Remember that they put the blood on the doorpost with the hyssop. Purify me with the hyssop. And he says, wash me cleanse, clean, and I will be clean. I know that I will be made whiter than snow. Earlier in the service, I told you about the, the ritual of a leper. When a leper was completely dirty and, and God had miraculously cleansed him, the way he would get cleansed is they would take a hyssop and they would dip it in blood and water and they would sprinkle it over that man and they would release, uh, they would have one dead, uh, one dead bird or dove and one would go away, symbolizing freedom and cleansing. And the priest would make a proclamation outside the camp by the sprinkling of the blood and the water. You are clean. And David said, I know my sin is like leprosy. There's something I can't get off my clothes. There's blood on my hands. I can't wash it off. But I know that because of a future Messiah, because of a future Redeemer, who's going to spill His blood and His water is going to pour out on Calvary, just like when they pierce Him in the side. He says, if you will take that hyssop and pass over me, you'll take that blood and you'll take that cross and you'll take that thing that Jesus is going to do and apply it by faith. David did that. He says, and you will wash me cleansed. I will be whiter than snow. You'll make this leprosy just go away. And I can come back into the presence of God again. He knew that God was that good. Let me tell you something. God is not ashamed, Hebrews says, to call you his own. He's not ashamed. There's nothing too bad that you can't do that God can't cleanse. That's how good our God is. There's nowhere you can't go into the pit of sin and the darkness of mire that God can't take you out and transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of His beloved Son. There's no place grace can't meet you. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. I think about that moment with the Samaritan woman. Remember that? In John chapter 4, Jesus comes to this woman at this well who's done all kinds of things. She's had like five failed marriages, relationships. She's sleeping with a man that's not even her husband. And Jesus comes and tells her about living water and how he can fill her and wash her and give her something in her life that she can't. She's been longing for her whole life, some place of belonging and becoming something that she can't do through religious works and, and festivals and all this stuff. And she goes back. Remember what she says to all the people? She says, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Why in the world would we want to do that? Come see a person who told me all the wrongs I've ever done. Why could you be excited about that? Why could you be excited that God exposed your sin, told you all the bad things you've ever done? Why? Because she got it washed with the water that day. Man, she got cleansed at the well. It went white to snow. Man, she drank from something when she was trying to supply all herself in this life. She said, it's not in this man. It's not in this man. It's not in this man. It's not in everybody that says stuff about me. She's out there alone. She couldn't even be with nobody, walk, uh, taking water by herself in the middle of the day. And Jesus comes and says, but I've got something you've always been looking for. Man, come see a man who told me all the... Man, there is grace, unmerited, undeserved favor 
in God. That's number two. Number three is this. Make amends. Make amends. You know, while we're saved by grace through our faith in Jesus, part of getting right with God is also getting right with others. Uh, David demanded the rich man pay him back four times. David, in righteousness, took Bathsheba after he had killed her husband and had her be pregnant. She could have lived with the shame. She could have even been stole, uh, stoned. But he redeemed her. He bought her back. God had forgiven him, and he redeemed her. You see, repenting to God uh, may not just be enough. You may need to work for repairing some relationships in your life, maybe some damage you've done. Uh, maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe you need to have a face-to-face -face apology. Maybe it's buying a gift. Maybe it's doing something uh, to compensate someone. Remember what Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Uh, they may not receive your apology, though. They may not be ready for it. But Jesus says, when you're going to God on the way to make a sacrifice to God, and you remember that your brother has something against you, what does he say? Leave your gift at the altar, and then go make it right with your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. What is he saying? Sometimes in prayer, sometimes uh, in relationships, when we're praying and trying to grow in God, God's going to reveal something to you. He says, you did something. Maybe it was 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 1 week ago. And he says, there's something that someone else has against you. You need to go make it right if you want to continue to be right with me. Remember what the Lord's Prayer says? Lord, forgive us as we forgive other people, right? Forgive me of my debts as I forgive those who have debted against me or transgressed against me. There is something about being in right relationship with God that's going to cause you to be in right relationship with others. You may not have it. They, they have to accept it, but I still have to be the first one to offer it. It's on me. Why? Because they may be living in a prison of unforgiveness against me, and I have the key to unlock their freedom. And it's not fair for you and me to live in the freedom of God and say, well, God, I'm saved, I'm thankful, I'm renewed, I'm redeemed. He said, yeah, but someone else you damaged, they're still living in the prison of what you did. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, the kingdom way is to go make amends with the people of our past. We have a Celebrate Recovery. Part of our process is to write a letter to those people you uh, need to make amends with. It's a process of restoration because you might live free in God, but your freedom is not truly free and you start, until you start living in freedom with other people. Now, they may not accept it. You may not get into right relationship with Him automatically, but it's still our job. They say, God, who, who do I have the keys to? Who, who, who am I holding the power over to unlock their shame, to unlock their prison of unforgiveness? They deserve their, my apology so they can live free as well. I remember, uh, I remember when I was pastoring years ago, and in fact, Logan Miller, who's my, one of my best friends, is coming to preach in a few weeks. He and I were working in ministry together. I don't even remember what happened, but I, I went home one day, and I've shared this before. I went home. It was right after work. We both lived next to the church, both in two parsonages, uh, neighboring fences, and I went in to uh, make supper for Beth. We didn't have any kids at the time. I was getting supper, turned the TV on, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, he's mad at you. And I was like, what? We just hung out all day. We just we said bye and walked across the yard to go to each of our houses like 4 p.m. He says, he's mad at you. Something's up. I felt so strong about it, just in a moment, a flash, as I turned the TV on, I texted him and said, meet me at the fence. We had adjoining fences. It's like that uh, home improvement show, you know, Tim, and I always thought about that, you know, I'm Wilson or whatever. And so we go to the fence, and I said, hey, something going on? Are you mad at me? And he said, yes. 
There was something you said the other day that just, I took it this way and blah, 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 blah. And I had no idea. Had no idea. But that moment kept that relationship reconciled. That moment, God revealed to me, someone has ought against you. Leave your gift. Don't take another step. Go make it right with your brother. We have a, a thing here at our church. We say grace, love, truth. And truth means that we are truth tellers. I can't go preach the truth to a lost and dying world if I don't speak the truth to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have to lay that pride down and say, man, John, maybe we were offended each other and I've got to work that out because we can't go tell the gospel. The truth of God, if we can't speak the truth in love to one another. How many say amen to that? Amen. you got to make amends. It's hard to do, but man, you got to do it for restoration. Number four is this, accept the cost. Accept the cost. Sometimes just because God forgave us and He accepts us, we think sometimes others should too. Young Christians often think this, especially those who are coming out of bad uh, uh, moments in their life where they're getting restored. They're like, ah, you know, they should forgive me because I got saved and, you know, and I'm, I'm doing right now. How come people don't just accept me? Well... Sometimes that takes time. Just because God forgave us, we think others might, should too. You know, David in his prayer, he didn't make excuses. He recognized he'd have to live with a broken family. That was a consequence that God didn't take. He, he would lose his child. He would have to work to rebuild his character, his respect, his authority. And so in Psalms 51 verse 4, he says, You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Some things won't be undone in this life. In this world, we do reap what we sow. And sometimes just because we're healed doesn't mean there's not also scars. How many say amen to that? Amen. Some things we'll reap and sow. But David, nevertheless, when he, his son died, he got up, he purified himself, he went into the place of God, and he began to worship. How could he do that? How could he worship after losing his son, lost his character, lost his respect, lost his authority, would live with a broken family? He could worship because he lived. He could worship because Bathsheba would live. He could worship because God saved him. He could worship because he was forgiven. He was worshiping because he was restored. He was worshiping because God renewed his spirit. He was worshiping because in just a few more weeks, he would have another son. And that son would be called Solomon. And God would bless Solomon. And God would cause Solomon to continue the legacy that David longed for, to build God a permanent dwelling. And God would use Solomon to continue this promise that David had, that a Messiah would come through David's own lineage. How many know God blesses us better than we deserve. He blesses us better than we deserve. And he would, uh, there's a, a one small line in there. It says David, or his wife named him Solomon, but then Nathan comes along and he names him Jedediah. Here's what Jedediah means. Loved by God. See, David had a black mark on his life. God took a son. But when God gave him another son, God said, you are loved. God can restore. There's a verse in Jeremiah where it says God can take what the eating, gnawing, swarming locusts have taken and he can restore it. God can restore things. Let me tell you something. Just because there was a vine or a tree cut down in your life doesn't mean a grafted vine can't make new fruit. Sometimes we are so mourning on the old life that we lost that we're not, or that we're missing the life that God's given. 
There are some things that God's just going to make new in your life. It may not be the marriage you once had. Your relationship with your kids may not be what it was. It may take time for those kids that you should have raised in church to come back to church. It may take time for that failed uh, marriage to come a genuine friendship. It may take time for that reputation that you lost to finally be restored. You may have had a life of crime, and you may have to learn to live with a criminal record. That doesn't mean God can't give you fruit in a grafted tree. Are you with me? I think really somebody needs to hear that today. It doesn't mean God can't use you in different ways, in new ways. But you can keep mourning that old life that you've lost and miss the life that God's given you right now. David said, I've lost these things. I've lost my character, reputation. In fact, God said, because I'm taking this, the reason I'm taking this child is because the enemy is using this child to spurn my name. Look what he did. Look what she did. And God ended that. And God said, but I've given you a child, and I'm calling him loved. I'm going to do things through this kid that you could never do. You see, there's things God wants to do in your life that may be different than what you could have done. And by leaving those things to God, I, I accept the consequences of my past. There are things that maybe aren't going to be perfect in this life. There are scars that are going to be there, but I know I'm healed. So, Lord, I want to make sure I can worship you in this season. This good season may look a little different, but God still can produce good fruit. He is a God who satisfies you with good life. And lastly, number five is walk restored. I said, some people may never accept you, even after God has restored you. You may be that person, well, that's an adulterer, that's a swindler, that's a drug addict. You, especially in small town, you may never get off that label. To be honest, you may never get off that label. And that's on them. That's not on you. Look what David said. I'm close with this. Look in verse 12. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good design. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifice and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The young bulls will be offered on your altar. He says, restore to me, number one, the joy of my salvation. Something I lost, I lost my joy. I lost that reputation. I lost that character. These people forever are going to use this over my head. Joab, he's going to always know I killed that dude. He's always going to, I mean, my men, I conspired. My men pulled away from him. Man, I can never get off that, that I lost a child, that this isn't even my wife, that this wife was given to me in adultery. And, and how do we move forward from that? They're always going to label me. Yeah, they may. But God, he says, but I can be restored to a joy that's not in their opinion of me, but in my position with God. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. His joy was in God alone, in his position that was restored in Jesus Christ. It's not on people's opinions of you. Somebody say amen. Your joy can't be in what everybody thinks about you. It's got to be in your new position in Jesus Christ. Restore to me a joy that's what God says about me, not what other people say about me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And then what does he say? 
And my life is going to be a living sacrifice to you. The sacrifice that you want is not a religious works, but it's a continual brokenness. Paul says that we have to die daily. Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me daily, Luke says. Daily, it's to deny myself and to walk in the ways of God, to humbly walk at his feet. What does that mean? It means to wash other people's feet. Don't be like that wicked servant that, that forgot how good God had been to him and starts collecting on other people's debts when God's freed your debt. It means to be a person who is always walking humbly with the Lord, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, Micah says, to be a person who is broken. And that's when we keep this sign on our church, welcome to the broken. We have all been broken in some way. And this is restoration. I don't want to forget what God has done in my life. I don't want to think like myself like a Pharisee. Well, at least, God, I'm not like that person over there. No, we're all lost and undone. God's no respecter of person. We're all living sacrifices, broken vessels for the Lord. That's what God wants us to be. And lastly, he says this. I'll close with this. He says, now, God, do something that I could never do by my own power. I could never dig myself out of this hole. I could never get a life back that I lost. But he says, but, Lord... If you restore this joy, and if I walk humbly with the Lord as a broken vessel, God, I want to teach people who are lost like me. Teach me, and I'm going to teach sinners your ways. If you, if you do this in my life, God, I want to rebuild the things that were torn down. I want to see your city built up. I want to see sinners come to you. I want to tell my testimony. See, what a great weapon the Bible says you have, that they will overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the what? Word of their testimony. You see, God has a great position for you. The greatest thing you could have ever done with your life is not do life your own way like you were doing before, but he says, in the middle of all this ruin, I will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and I will make a place of dwelling through my son, and this son is going to build on this earth. Solomon's future son would be Jesus Christ, the son of David. He would build a temple that would all could come in and experience the grace of God, and that we would all be living stones, Peter says. David had a seed in that. David had a part in it. The greatest thing you could do is have a part in God's story. The greatest thing you could do is tell someone who's broken how God healed you, how God restored you. The greatest thing you can do is turn sinners back to a God who was so good that he accepted you and your brokenness and your failure, who took you from remorse to restoration to give them hope. There's no greater position, joy, honor, privilege in this life than to tell people how good God has been to you. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me this morning? No greater honor, no greater joy. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. I will teach sinners your way. Maybe you haven't been ready to tell your testimony because you didn't think it was very good yet. You didn't think it was completed yet. You didn't feel worthy enough to tell it. Man, God wants you to restore that. He wants to restore that joy so that you can tell more people about him. That's the good news. You say, I'm not a preacher. Yeah, but you have a story. You have a testimony. You have something God has done for you. There's no greater honor, no greater position than to tell the world how good God is. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We just bow our hearts before the Lord this morning. Let's let the Holy Spirit call us to respond in however we feel led. Maybe this morning you're in a place where God has just been stirring in you. It's a burning, it's a, it's a yearning, there's conviction, because he's like, I want this to be right. I want to be back in right relationship with you. He's pursuing you. That's the grace of God. 
It's not about guilt. Conviction is not guilt. Conviction is a wooing. It's a drawing, even a reproof. It was the grace of God that was calling David back because God loves you. God is so good. His love endures forever. His love, loving kindness is from everlasting to everlasting. God wants perfect union with you. He wants a relationship with you. You're here today and your life is not right with God and you feel that drawing. You sense that he's calling you back to himself. All of it is, is just acknowledging, just repenting, saying, God, I acknowledge that I have sinned against you and I'm coming back. I'm turning from this way, turning to your way. And Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner far from, from your presence, but Lord, by grace, I know I can be saved through faith. Nothing I could ever do but by the work of Jesus Christ, I cry out grace. I cry out mercy. Cleanse this sinner like me, Lord. Cleanse me, make me whole. Purify me with a hyssop and I will be clean. I will be made whiter than snow. And God's gonna restore to you that joy of salvation so you can tell other people. Maybe you're here today. Number two is that you have been living with the shame of this past. You've been right with God but you have been missing out on what God is doing in your life because you've been so caught up with what other people have ever said or will say or do say about you. That joy of salvation is being missed because you're mourning some things you've lost. I really feel today that God just wants to restore you to understand, yes, you can accept the consequences, but you don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live with regret. It may not be perfect now, but God can take what the enemy has stolen he can take what the worm and the grasshopper and the locusts have eaten, and he can restore you to a satisfied life. That grafted tree that he's grafted into your life can still produce fruit. It may not look like what it was, but it will be better than you deserve. It will be better than you could ever do on your own. Just receive that joy from the Lord. Just tell somebody how good he is. If that, any of that relates to you today, I want you just to begin to worship the Lord. In a moment, I'm going to ask us to stand. I'm going to invite our elders to go ahead and come and make their way this way.